podcast for December 2022. It's the last time you're going to hear from us this year, probably. Well, unless you meet us in person, right? <laughs> Are you? Yes. Well, I mean, hear from it also could be our e-blast too. Those will be coming out or videos on social right. media or who knows. Yeah. True. True. We've got lots of e-blasts coming your way. You're going to be sick of us. Um, not true. <laughs> just, yeah, not, not entirely true. Maybe a few more than usual because it is the holiday season and we've got a couple of um, what uh, what we think are actually really kind of cool ways for you to be able to support us um, and also get something out of the bargain. We've got e-gift cards that you can get on our donation page, simcoecountygreenbelt.ca slash donation or donate slash donate. And you can choose the amount there. And uh, if you want to give a gift for the holiday season, you can add your own custom message to it. That'll go to the person receiving it. It'll be included on the gift card. You can also upload a photo or image, and that'll be included on the gift card. There's four different uh, styles that you can choose from. And you can also, well, you could do that and this, or you could do or this. And I'm kind of just confusing myself now. But if you wanted to become a monthly donor, uh, we have some swag and sort of different tier levels available depending on the amount. Um, sort of similar to what a Patreon subscription is, but we're just doing it on our website. And all of these donations are included in a matching campaign that we're doing again this year. Margaret, you want to... Mm -hmm. a little bit on that yeah we're pretty lucky i mean i'm just laughing a little bit in my head because normally the podcasts i'm listening to they're pushing some sort of diet drink or taco seasoning or (laughs) things so why are we not doing that i know there's where is where is the uh the agreement we should i don't know what we would be what product we'd be able to sell but we're just selling ourselves i guess in some weird way our efforts um anyways we've been very fortunate to have uh margaret atwood's support for several years now um not just financially but also just to be a mentor and a supporter and uh it's been great so she has agreed um that she's going to give us money for every monthly donor we have. So up to $10,000. So if you make a monthly donation, regardless of the amount, she's going to give us uh, an extra hundred dollars, which is great. And, um, small grassroots groups like ours have a hard time with funding, especially as province, the province has changed the rules on some of the normal pots of where smaller groups like ours would go to get money. Um, environmental groups in particular are struggling um, to find that. So just know that donation to us also goes back uh, in way of helping local groups, even more local groups. So people in your backyard that are trying to fight for climate justice or, you know, protecting wetlands or that sort of thing. Uh, Our time is partially to deal with bigger projects, but also to help out at the local level. So it's a Mm -hmm. win, 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 I guess. Yeah. Well, and one of the rewards for some of these uh, monthly donations are uh, shout outs on on the podcast. So you, you could be part of this. And uh, how exciting is that? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to? Come on. Yeah. Come on. (laughs) So what do we got on the agenda for today, Margaret? Oh, man. Uh, We wanted to kind of do a wrap up of 
what we've been up to the last month and a bit, I guess. Um, normally, we reserve our December issue for where we've been, and it's a c- complete retrospective of the year. And um, frankly, this year we've been really busy, but we've been particularly busy these last few last few weeks. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about Bill 23, which is a hot topic, and the Greenbelt land grabs, and wanted to give you kind of our perspective on what we see going on. And I think this is the third Christmas season in a row that there has been like really terrible legislation rammed through right near the end of the year that Mm. has taken us off of like what we had planned on doing and moved us into someone else. I think our very first Christmas with the Ford government was bill 66 first or second. I can't remember, but it feels like it's been every successive kind of holiday season has been wrapped up in draconian omnibus legislation in one way, shape or another. Um, So today we're just talking about this year's flavor of terrible policy. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it, it, it comes with a bow on it, right? Like they, here you go, yes. Merry Christmas, enjoy all of this stress and anxiety and work that you have to do on the time that you otherwise would be spending <laughs> with your family yes. in, the, in the holiday season. I mean, we've sort of talked about it, uh, you and I a little bit, um, about how they do this or at least wondering if they do this intentionally right i mean just in the off season i, I don't even know if they're in the legislature anymore um until uh, friday okay uh but it's it seems like it's the seasonal equivalent to or the yearly equivalent to the press drop on a friday 5 p.m kind of thing mm-hmm. no you don't well no it's a little bit different because yeah they are i guess doing it uh perhaps uh, at a time when they think that it's going to have less, uh, I don't know, blowback or repercussions perhaps um, because the legislature will be out. Open question of just how useful the exchanges in the legislature are anyways. Mm -hmm. I think things are a little dysfunctional um, in in that uh, room and in that building regardless, but uh, it's a little bit more difficult to hold them to account uh, when they are not there, perhaps, mm-hmm. but the media has a role to play, I guess. And there, there, there's been some good coverage of this issue, hasn't there been? Yeah, that there has been for sure. It kind of reminds me of um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And, you know, when he's expecting the money to buy his pool and he gets like the Jello subscription instead, but kind of like you're expecting something bad, but it ends up being worse. <laughs> At least he had something like that was positive. It kind of becomes that. But the media coverage has been good, I guess, to start we should probably outline people what what polling has shown is that a lot of people when they hear bill 23 are aware of it know that they don't like it but they don't really know what it has to do with so maybe it'd be good to start off with what actually is bill 23 which is now law i i'll start off i guess and and adam you can add in because adam did a lot of research into it uh into our submission uh so it's i think it's called more homes faster act it kind of feels like AI omnibus legislation planning, you know, putting keywords and then put them in a string and see what comes out the other side kind of feel. But anyways, more homes, faster act, something like that. 
there were 20 different regulatory changes that were affecting numerous bills, uh, sorry, numerous pieces of legislation that already exist, um, various ministries. So it was a wide reaching bill. The idea or the intent that was, was told to people was this is a way to get more homes and more affordable homes in place. And, um, some of you may know that the affordability housing task for how, yeah, housing affordability task force that the uh, provincial government put together early in this year came out with the report and had a whole list of like, if you want to do things to help affordability and housing attainability, then here's what you need to do. And, um, very little of that report is in this bill and things that they said should not be done, such as you don't need to open up the green belt have been proposed separate to bill 23. So So some of yeah. So specifically, there's no need to open the green belt for land supply. Like there's there's right. enough land supply currently to uh, meet the needs for housing that have been identified by the province um, that are not infringing on the green belt boundary. Yeah, exactly. So that was a very clear thing in that housing affordability task force report that the conservative government, I might add, hand selected pulled together, decided what their terms of reference are going to be, what they're going to study. And this is the outcome of it. So this isn't a partisan uh, group that was just thrown together to, to work against the province. They were supposed to be there. They were created by the province in efforts to help the the province address affordable housing. So, sorry. sorry. No, I mean, it's, it's a little bit sort of funny, like sad, funny too. I mean, like I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of the, that housing affordability task force. I thought it was a bit of a mixed bag. It was definitely a task force that seemed skewed towards the, mm-hmm. the, the building industry, yeah. um, sort of in favor of them in terms of who was on it. And that's kind of been a theme we've seen uh, <laughs> throughout this. I mean, maybe it'll shock no one that, uh, you know, the, the government is, is pretty influenced by developers. <laughs> well, case in point, Hazel McCallion was the former mayor of Mississauga who uh, sprawled. She was, you know, she, she was the sprawl queen of Ontario, um, is now the head of the new Greenbelt Council and basically said, yes, open up the Greenbelt. I mean, this is her position. So, I mean, yeah. it, it's just kind of funny. Anyways, getting well, back. Well, no, I was, just, I was just to wrap that up. I mean, even this, even this task force, which you'd think, you know, it was sort of designed almost to give them the result that they wanted. You know, they, they, they weren't good enough. They weren't mm-hmm. developer friendly enough for this government. Well, I think the interesting thing is that issues that shouldn't be partisan have become partisan, right? Housing shouldn't mm-hmm. be a partisan issue. It's it's one of those things that it's a it's a basic necessity. We feel it's it's a human right that everybody should have. And there's different approaches to it. But it's almost like they're now putting it as either you're for housing or you're against housing. And um, similar to you're either for the environment or you're against the environment. And if you're for the environment, you're against the economy. Like all these binaries set up of of you know, very simple things. And, and what ends up happening is when they create those kind of, you're either with this or against this, or you're with us or, or, or against us is the actual 
solutions get lost in the the politics, the discourse, right? Um, so this is another example of of how it shouldn't be a partisan issue. There's different approaches to it, and there's there's different ways to do it. But the idea that there's some parties that are for housing and some parties that are against housing is just absurd. I mean, nobody, I haven't heard anybody say nobody should have houses. Nobody should have housing. Nobody, you know, we don't, we're against housing. That's, that's not, that's not the way, that's not the reality. Yeah. It's a question of where the housing goes, how it's built. Yes. Um, And I think that that's, that's really sort of the dramatic picture that has been painted here, right? Like that, this bill 23 does something that's quite a departure from the direction the province has been going uh, in um, since what uh, when the growth plan was was brought in. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was two. That was McGinty. So I'm going to say somewhere around 2005 because that's roughly around the same time the Greenbelt Act. But I can't remember specifics, so don't hold me to that date. Anyways, mm-hmm. so some of the the how we feel about it, and we've got a media statement that we put out about this: more homes, faster, better. This. More, more homes built faster act. <laughs> I just think these titles are so so ridiculous. They're just they're just really meant to be put into a media article to make you think that the frame is already set up that this is a positive thing, and you'll never have to look into it. Anyways, um, so we put up a few media statements about what we think about this bill and um, the some of the larger concerns that I have, and I know Adam shares a lot of them, but you might have your own specific ones is um, one, there's the the gutting of the conservation authorities that they're being forced to uh, provide permitting uh, even when, so some of the, the, some of the things that they used to be able to say, well, this is going to be harmful to biodiversity. It's going to be harmful to the longstanding health of this land. We're not going to be issuing a permit. Um, those kind of controls are now out and they've had their, their mandate really narrowed just to flooding and only in certain circumstances. And, uh, conservation authorities have come out really clearly how terrible this would be for floodplains and for risks for, for personal risk, insurance risk. It got to the point where now the federal government has said to the provincial government, these are plans you guys are going through. We're not paying you back for whatever emergencies happen um, because you flooded people intentionally by, by allowing developers to build on floodplains. So that's, that's one of the things. Um, another one is, again, going back to wetlands where there's an evaluation system about how wetlands are deemed significant or not significant. And there's been a lot of underfunding about how wetlands, how many wetlands get evaluated, but it used to be something that the ministry would do. And uh, as listeners would know, and Adam and I know, you know, wetlands work on a system. And so you can't really piecemeal it apart. It, it, it's a, it's an entire package that's been assessed as as a package, right? So they call that complexing. Well, now that's been taken out. And on top of that, the ministry will no longer be doing the wetland evaluations. It's now left up to developers to do their evaluations. And if they own a piece of land within a wetland, um, they're not allowed, they can, they can take it apart. So they can say, oh, this is the piece that we own and we're going to do an evaluation on it. Oh, just so you know, it's not a wetland anymore. And therefore it's, it's feasible to build on. Um, and then they submit those evaluations to municipality and that's where it ends. There's no uh, third party to look it over. There's no ministry involvement whatsoever. And, um, what we think this will lead to is a lot of delisting of provincially significant wetlands, because another thing that's changed in that is that, um, wetlands used to be given a score based on certain criteria. And one of the the biggest criteria was whether it was habitat for endangered species. Well, now that's no longer 
allowed to be counted in the significance of a wetland. So you could have rare salamanders or birds or whatever, ones that, you know, that are critically endangered and no longer will that wetland be given any credit or recognition for being that habitat. And when I was speaking to an MPP locally, I said, what problem are you trying to solve by allowing wetlands to not be recognized as an endangered species habitat. I mean, I was doing it kind of facetiously because I know that the end goal is to allow development to happen wherever developers want it to happen. But what is the actual, what was the problem with the system that requires basically tearing up decades long evaluation system um, to just be poof, gone? Uh, there was no answer given back to me on that, but I think it's a question, you know, how does this have to deal with affordable homes, building in floodplains on endangered species habitat in the middle of nowhere? Tell me, tell me how we're doing this. And, and we held a press conference with, um, some local housing advocates and they were concerned about the changes to affordability definitions to how much they've actually reduced how many or what percentage of housing needs to be affordable within developments in some cases so the city of toronto said like 20% 21% something like that needs to be affordable on any given project and now the province has limited that at 5 um barry also has a percentage higher than than 5% so now they'll be have to take down their requirements for developers to afford, uh, to provide a certain percentage of affordable housing. So those are like the, the big things. Um, but there's, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast just going through all the different pieces of legislation and why terrible they are, but how terrible they are. But those are my biggest ones. It's quite something we were talking earlier this morning about this, uh, what you're just mentioning, um, with the delisting, I guess, or whatever of the, uh, species at risk habitat that 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 they'll no longer be included um in the points that are used to determine uh whether it's a provincially significant wetland it's just you know it's it's remarkable to think about this coming from the provincial government of the largest province in canada just what a month month and change kind of before canada hosts or co-hosts the uh, COPE 15 Biodiversity Summit in Montreal, Mm -hmm. um, which is a recognition that biodiversity and species on this planet are really in a tight spot. There's a lot of concern about what's happening. And um, I think, I, I don't know if it's because there's a lack of understanding. I mean, your question about what, what what's the benefit what's the purpose of leaving species at risk out of, out of the scoring system um you know presumably there's just there there isn't a belief that they're important mm-hmm. you know that this salamander doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things what matters more is that there's a house mm-hmm. so we're gonna we're gonna bulldoze some dirt into this uh wetland into this pond where the salamander um you know, it used to go to, uh, to reproduce, uh, and we're going to build a house on top of this thing. And, you know, big deal. It's a salamander. Well, yeah. That's uh, Darwin, when he wrote his famous uh, Origin of the Species book, he had this really, and I'm not going to be able to do it sort of off the top of my head, but he had this beautiful phrase, this paragraph, I think it was towards the end of the book, where he described evolution as a tapestry. Um, a complex interwoven tapestry. And this is the thing. I mean, it's not just, it's not just that it 
is benefiting these other species, these non-human species, right? But actually having the diversity of, of, of species in our world benefits us too. It's, it's, a, it's a resilience, a bioresilience that, that mm-hmm. benefits and behooves us to, to maintain. Yeah, um, no, for sure. And, and Sorry, it's a real profound misunderstanding of how life works uh, on the part of this government, um, you know, that, that they don't really seem to care about these, yeah. these things. I was just going to mention you. So you you mentioned the conservation authorities. Some additional sort of factors that they're uh, no longer going to be able to consider pollution, um, mm-hmm. the, the impacts of pollution. Yeah, so they're just strictly focusing on natural hazards and flooding. So pollution is no longer in their remit, uh, and conservation of land also is no longer going to be part of their uh, remit when they're assessing a proposed a proposed development. And it goes further. There's something I'll, I'll, I'll follow. Well, so, I mean, part of that also is they've been now mandated to assess their current land holdings and uh, come up with a figure of how much of this land actually is a good candidate for development. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so in fact, that that sort of conservation of land, the, the, the conservation authority actually now is being tasked with sort of the opposite um, being a land bank almost. Land, term, yeah. What, you know, rather than conserving land, uh, this is the land available for development now. So identifying that. Mm-hmm. But part of what uh, conservation authorities uh, use this land that they conserve, you know, not, it, it's not just sort of uh, ecologically important, but it also um, helps conservation authorities generate revenue. Right, so they charge fees for programs that they do, that they deliver on these lands uh, to the public, and that's you know that that is a connection that the, that is available to the public, um, many of whom live in urban settings, but who can go to these conservation areas and participate in these programs and have that connection, and particularly when when these are children uh, involved in these programs, they're developing a connection to nature that helps them understand exactly those linkages that we just mentioned with the value of biodiversity and how that is so crucial to supporting life on earth, not just, not just non-human life, but all life. Yeah. Right. We're cutting out, we're, we're, we're a house on stilts and we're chopping off stilts as we go. And yeah. with this belief that just this one single stilt, you know, of, of, of the human being actually is going to be enough to keep that house from tipping over. Yeah. Um, so I guess the point there is that maybe if Doug spent more time at a conservation area when he was a kid uh, participating in the programs that conservation authorities deliver, he would have a better understanding of how these things work. And he'd be a little bit smarter in the types of policies he's laying out for the future of Ontario. Yeah, no, for sure. The uh, And I'll add further to that, and then we can stop with the doom scrolling sort of podcast version, is... Um, one of the other changes with Bill 23 is you might have heard us in previous episodes talk about wetland offsetting. And uh, years ago, under the previous government, like the liberal government, they created a, a wetland strategy. And one of the big things was that no no net loss to wetlands. And that kind of started in a little bit of the wetland offsetting. But um, the idea being that for offsetting, you can destroy a wetland in one place, 
and either, uh, you know, create a wetland in another place, or if you can't do that, then to pay money and, um, for the, for the just rampant destruction that you just caused, um, under bill 23, the wetland offsetting policies also been extended to significant forests and woodlots. And, um, it's made it much easier to pay into this program that has very little public transparency about where the fund is going and what it's going to be applied against and everything else. So it's a, it's a like pay to slay on steroids where yeah. they had done that for endangered species in their last term government. Now they've extended it, formalized it for wetlands and for natural heritage systems and significant woodlots and forests. Um, and I just, you know, call me, call me cynical. I just don't have a lot of belief that if it's going to be cheaper just to pay into a fund that many, uh, developers or many industries are going to say, Oh, you know what? I want to do the right thing and spend more money trying to recreate or protect or move the development or move whatever. I think what's going to end up happening is you're going to get a bank account full of money. That's probably not going to be handled well or appropriated, uh, appropriately, at least ecologically. And, um, just to kind of make everything go faster, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, can we, shall we name names? I mean, there's a particular culprit here who's part of the NGO community who, who's been very prominent in, in supporting this, you know, in, they have come out now though. They did come out against, against the wetland offsetting just recently. So we should probably, a little bit, I, so they they have been sort of in the back rooms with with the Ford government until just recently. It sounds like, yeah. uh, as big supporters of this, uh, because they were um, actually sort of uh, one of the sole beneficiaries of yeah, the and, and they were going to be uh, administering the the money. But that's un, that's ducks unlimited. Um, that that were uh, sort of a big part of all of this sort of coming to pass. So. Uh, they deserve some bad karma in my books uh, on that. So another, one, one more thing I wanted to get at. I, I don't know if you're, if you're done with Bill 23, but there's one more thing I wanted to get at, which was the public participation part. It really, well, there's the DCs we should probably talk about as well, which are going to do wonders for your tax levels. Yeah. Uh, like if we can sort of chart tax level and blood level, uh, blood pressure, sort of have that, have that, have that hockey chart graph happening with those. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but no, but this, first of all, with the public participation part, um, it's interesting because they really are basically shutting that down. There's going to be basically no public participation uh, possible any longer for parties that are not directly involved. Um there's some sort of carve out for first nations, but even first nations, I think have to be directly involved. Right. Yeah. Uh, so basically developers, municipalities and possibly first nations. Um, and, and I mean, they're members of the public, but only if members of the public are directly involved. So if it's their land, basically that, that is uh, part of the, part of the issue. Um, so, uh, the, there, there are penalties, however, for like, uh, if a municipality brings a challenge and that challenge is, you know, if the municipality is found against or whatever, then there are penal penalties that are, that can be awarded against the, the municipality, like costs basically, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Which 
for a lot of municipalities, uh, especially smaller ones, many like many are in Simcoe County. They don't have a large uh, planning department or legal, or legal departments. Yeah, <laughs> this. I mean, this. This, this is a uh, that is likely to have a substantial chilling effect. I mean, what municipality wants to act on behalf of their public? You know who they're meant to represent, but 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 to take that risk without sort of a solid legal analysis uh, in the first place on you know whether or not it's likely to to be upheld, which you know yeah. this is a quasi judicial body as well. It's not it's not a black letter law type of, of body, but whether that's going to be upheld, what municipality wants to take a risk taking that forward and then uh, knowing they may very well be on the hook for damages after or for, you know, for costs anyways associated yep. with the challenge after. Um, additionally, the the lack of resources that uh, cons conservation authorities are going to have after these changes, you know, such as what I just mentioned with the reduced uh, possibility for revenue from utilizing their, their conservation areas for programming and stuff like that. There's going to be less expertise uh, going into uh, municipal um, knowledge areas in terms of whether or not to challenge. All this sort of stuff, I think, is very likely to have a chilling effect. So we're not going to see as many challenges of, of developments, um, okay. even though they may be merited. Uh, but I think there's another thing, and this is more sort of in the realm of possibility, uh, although I think it's a fairly real possibility. I've seen a number of accounts, uh, fairly prominent sort of YIMBY accounts out there, yes, in my backyard, uh, you know, pro-intensification, pro-housing accounts, which typically I tend to mostly agree with. But I've seen a number of them actually sort of looking at this uh, reduction in, in public participation as a good thing. <clears throat> because there are, there's, there's a, a good argument to be made that that has enabled nimbyism or not in my backyard people from uh, posing challenges and just sort of adding to sort of the dead weight of some developments that actually maybe should be going forward. However, I think one of the, and perhaps it's an unintended consequence of this is that you, this, this particular venue, uh, a formalized venue for uh, people being able to air grievances or air concerns about a, 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 an issue has been for, has been shut down. So what happens is there now are there are informal avenues that will be taken, um, and those avenues are uh, principally, you know, perhaps at the golf club or something like that, right? So you're going to have the, I, I feel like the impact of this is going to be more sort of where people without uh, access to those informal avenues, those linkages, those relationships um, with people who have the ability to make these changes uh, in positions of power, those communities, which are the, the, the marginalized communities, right? They excluded from those informal areas. Uh, are where this lack of public participation is actually going to be realized. Um, whereas those areas, you know, uh, Forest Hill, for example, or Rosedale or what have you, like the wealthy areas where they know these people and they're able to say, or they're able to say to go to their MP 
MPP and say, look, we we're we're really concerned with this. Uh, we've got we've got we've got a certain amount of political capital, social capital, and economic capital that you should be worried about if you go forward with this. And so those chains of communication go up to the premier's office, and that development doesn't get made. So it's 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 not it's not that people won't be able to act to, to influence these developer developments anymore. It's just that that influence is no longer going to be uh, equally accessible. It wasn't, it, it already wasn't equally accessible. There was a cost associated with it, it's although it's relatively measurable, but, but still um, I think that is going to be an unintended consequence of this as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I've said it before in some some public speeches I've done that I, I think places like Simcoe County will be disproportionately affected by the changes to Bill 23 than some other places. There's like a, a perfect storm of characteristics that some of you've mentioned. You know, we've got municipalities that are cash strapped that don't have legal departments, don't have big planning departments. We've got conservation authorities that are relatively small, equally cash strapped. Um, we've got a huge amount of wetlands. Uh, the Nottawasaga Valley Conservation Authority said that they oversee 33 provincially significant wetlands within their borders. Um, those so are just the ones that have been identified. Yes. Those are, yes. Those don't even count the ones that haven't been identified that probably would be provincially significant if someone would, would cough up the cash to get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, so Which you've we got, know, we know on good information, on good authority, like there are many out there that, that yeah. are, would be classified as Actually, one of the people that's done a lot of the classification has told us there are many out there that would be classified if they were just, you know, if the work was done. Exactly. So, you know, you've got a lot of significant wetlands and a lot of significant forest tract uh, within Simcoe County. Um, And frankly, there are councillors and councils that have been enmeshed with the building industry uh, in Simcoe County for a really long time <clears throat> and uh, who like to sprawl. I mean, go look around Simcoe County. What do you see? You don't see a lot of really beautiful, smart urban design. You see a lot of ticky tacky houses and strip malls out in the middle of farm fields. And that's the other mm. thing we have a lot of. So we have a lot of space, a lot of places that are cheap to develop on and, uh, and lower threshold for what that means. And one other thing that happens with Bill 23 is that before your local municipality, so for example, uh, Innisfil or Wasega Beach or Collingwood would ha- take care of its local planning, but they would have to bump it up to the County of Simcoe level to have it approved. Uh, and, the, and the County of Simcoe would kind of take a, a bird's eye view of what the county looks like. And, you know, it looks at watersheds and natural heritage systems that kind of transcend municipal boundaries and identifies it and puts policies in place. Um and Bill 23 would actually remove the role of the county and leave it all up to the municipality and the province to figure out. So there's a couple of things that are wrong with that. One, like I said, a municipality can only plan within what's, what's ever within its, its boundaries, which, you know, you've got watersheds and natural heritage systems and wetlands that kind of go outside of those and they don't have control over that. So there's no coordinated body. And then two, there was uh, Simcoe County did its official plan and you know, we've been watching official plans in Simcoe County for a while now, and this was this was the time that they decided to take a significant turn away from sprawling settlement boundaries and and really try to focus on building affordable housing and maintaining 
municipalities within their existing settlement boundaries, most of which I think it's Clearview. We had calculated years ago, they have 125 years worth of land zone for development <laughs> within its settlement boundaries. So uh, that number's probably changed a little bit now, but I mean, there's there's no shortage of land within Simcoe County other than, than a couple of municipalities, um, those being Bradford, Alliston, and Innisfil. But even those, it's not a lot. So now if we take out that regional plan, the question is, what happens to those targets? What happens to those rules? Now are municipalities just allowed to do whatever they want? And are we going to have to keep track of 18 municipalities that have no coordinating body, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so much for all of the time we spent uh, <laughs> studying, analyzing, <laughs> and working on on that regional plan. Um, I mean, it had good aspects to it, but um, let's not... It wasn't not, perfect. No, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. perfect. No. But but it was a significant movement from uh, yes. previous uh, years in the direction that the county had been going, and we've got a we've got a, our analysis up on our website if you want to check it out. Uh, because if nothing, you know, if it doesn't tell you where the county is thinking of going now, uh, maybe it tells you a little bit about where they should be going. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. On so- on the point of the county, um, they. Let's see, maybe if we, maybe we can, maybe, so we're going to move on to the green belt soon, uh, yeah. because believe it or not, the green belt is also, uh, so that's actually not as Margaret uh, previously mentioned, it's not part of the bill 23 that's in addition to it. Uh, but maybe we can move on to sort of the, those concerns by way of a pocketbook concern that also has to do with the, uh, bill 23 and the DC charges issue the because as if you listen to us we like to make those connections between look i mean there there's a good reason to be an environmentalist purely from a concern for nature there's also a really good reason to be an environment environmentalist because uh it is uh more beneficial to us in terms of how we build and the costs of what we build that you know the, the the hit on our pocketbook um, it's less expensive to be smart and efficient about how we use resources. And that in a nutshell is environmentalism. Um, so let's see if we can do, if we can, if we can, if we can, uh, get ourselves in that door, but first and still make sense of everything. Um, so the DCs, you were just talking about Simcoe County and the MCR. Uh, now another part of, uh, bill 23 is, uh, municipalities will be getting far less, if in some instances, any uh, development charges from uh, builders for uh, construction of homes and things like that. So do you want to do you want to give a, a, a real quick explanation of what a development charge is and does? Uh, and then I've, I just pulled up uh, what the hit, what the uh, what the Simcoe County is expecting to lose as a result um, of, of revenue, what the revenue they're expecting to lose as a result of Bill 23. So I'll, I'll mention that. So a development charge is a rate set by each municipality. It's, there's not a standard rate set um, that it calculates and there's rules about how it calculates it. It's not just like, oh, we're going to willy nilly a thousand here, a thousand there, whatever. There are rules that the province sets about how development charges are calculated. They have to actually do studies to figure out what uh, the development charge would be. And the development charge is put on to um, the, the, the cost of a home, if you will, to 
compensate the municipality for servicing and new things that have to happen because of this development. So this isn't, um, this isn't something that's just like I said, willy nilly, or it doesn't go into anywhere. It just becomes this, this, you know, secret bank account. They, the development charges are used in Simcoe County um, and at the municipal level to pay for emergency services, long-term care homes, social servicing, housing, uh, maintenance and repair of roads, new water servicing, new sewer servicing, libraries, um, all kinds of things. And there's also rules that the province sets about where those development charges can be used. It's not a, it's not a pot that can just be spent however they want to on a new golf course. So, is a very defined set of, of rules about how those rates are set and also where that money gathered, where it goes. And I did a quick analysis of development charges. So when the house is sold, that development charge is supposed to go transfer from the from the developer back to the uh, municipality. And the idea is growth pays for growth. But when you, the idea of now that the province has is we're going to re- reduce or remove development charges so that houses are cheaper. But if you start to look at development charges across Simcoe County, you'll notice that there really is no rhyme or reason why one house is more than the other because of development charges. So, uh, for example, Agile Atasarantio has really low development charges anywhere from as low as 10,000 to over 30,000 for every new home, but their houses on average sell for $890,000, $900,000. You've got somewhere like uh, Barry, who has, I think it's over $70,000 uh, for development charges, and their housing is on average cheaper than what's in Agile Atasarantio. So, you know, you get all really what it starts to expose. It's more market forces than it has anything to do with a development charge per se. That's that's my quick quick synopsis. Yeah. yeah so and so that that just like to return to that little nugget of the rationale for it, which is that you're by taking off this this amount. You know, say what I don't know twenty thousand dollars for for Simcoe County. It's or is it they had it in here. I think there were 175 million. Yeah, it was 175 million for uh, over the next uh, 10-ish years um, that they are expected to lose. Anyways, that that cost uh, argument that you're going to make the house cheaper by taking off this this uh, let's just let, let's uh, walk along that path a little bit. So those costs went to pay for you know roads, wastewater services whatever uh emergency services stuff like that all right so what what's going to happen to that stuff now like what 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 does the province think is going to result as a consequence of municipalities not getting that money from developers anymore so developers uh they're paying less money to the municipality It'll be interesting to see if the price actually comes down. I have a feeling it probably won't come down. It might come down a little bit, but it'll creep up pretty quickly. Developers will be pocketing that money instead. But the municipality is still out that cash. So how are they going to how are they going to pay for these these uh, services that people expect? Well, maybe they're going to pay less for them. So um, are you going to be all right with more potholes and and fewer emergency services, less prompt? Uh, returns in your calls or um, you know, you're going to be all right with your property taxes rising because that's what's going to happen. 
And that's exactly the argument that the county's making, that a number of municipalities are making. Um, look, the only way we have uh, to continue to provide the services that people currently have uh, is to raise property taxes for this. They're, we don't. It's not like they have many other options to generate revenue to pay for this stuff. Mm-hmm. So the developers are getting a break here, but you are not. Yeah. Right. So instead of the de- now, you know, poor developers though. I mean, they're having hard times. So you know, cut the poor developers a bit of slack there. It's certain developers. There are some bad actors for sure. Well, in the no, but this that is a really good point. It is only a handful of developers that sort of fit that caricature that I'm talking about. But those are the guys that are driving these policy changes. We know that pretty well. And this maybe is where we can transition into the greenbelt stuff. Uh, you know, from that pocketbook argument uh, into the greenbelt. Um, you know, there's so the uh, Toronto Star uh, together with the what? I just had this uh, article pulled up because I don't want to <laughs> get it's a little bit tricky territory making some of these claims. Yeah. So the Toronto Star and uh, the Narwhal came out with an article recently, uh, uh, investigation into the properties that are going to be taken out of the green belts because there's a number of properties this government is proposing to take out of the green belt. And lo and behold, um, they are owned by developers who have given a lot of money and support to Doug Ford in this particular government. And one of the really interesting things here is some of these developers actually just bought some of these properties. Yep, months ago. Months ago, like September, right? So like uh, $80 million um, for a property in the Greenbelt, you're not going to be able to develop that thing. So a developer is buying this property in the Greenbelt that when they bought it was out of bounds to development. This isn't money out of their pockets either, right? This is, they get, they get loans for this from, from backers, typically banks. So these banks, you got to wonder, they're doing their due diligence as well. Like what are they, I mean, maybe there's just, um, some, some, some equity that they feel uh, reasonably confident they're going to be able to get these loans back. But you also got to think, well, you know, yeah. I think they know something we don't. What needs Uh, to be started here, sorry, Mm -hmm. just want to make this quick point is that what people may not realize is that when zoning changes happen on a piece of land, that's undevelopable, undevelopable into something that's urban the price of that land value goes up in hundreds of percents, sometimes depending where it is, thousands of percents. Yeah, so, a factor of 10 in, in some of these cases. Yeah, so you buy something at, a, at 3 million and it converts to something that's usable. Even if you don't build, you can now resell and, and make that little tidy profit. You're shorting. It's like, you know, shorting yeah. a stock, but... but uh, but it's it, it, there's a lot of money that that pe- that could potentially be made by this, and unfortunately, it's in these areas uh, that are being taken out of the green belt. Some of them are really sensitive areas. They're wetlands. You know, they're they're areas that were protected for a reason. Um, and uh, again, you know, these are areas that are not in already sort of built up areas so they are not currently serviced by the infrastructure we were just talking about that dc infrastructure so these are areas that um 
are we already know are going to be expensive for municipalities to maintain uh, rather than building up in uh, in more uh, you know in that more sort of gentle density kind of way. Well, um, not only that, the the green belt provides billions of dollars of ecosystem services a year mm-hmm. to us for free, just as to be protected. You know, that could be anything from water purification to air purification to uh, climate, you know, sequestering carbon. So as you chunk apart all of this, the Swiss cheese, the green belt, those ecosystem services, the, the functionality of the system is at risk, which means the things that we used to rely on that thing to do for free, the green belt to do for free, at some point, we're going to have to pay the piper and actually start paying for those things if we continue to to desecrate the entire system and its functionality. Well, and and the argument we always make, uh, you know, well, in, in response to this argument that the government always makes, which is that they are doing these things because we know that the province is going to grow by a certain number of people. Well, the response to that is yes. And those people are going to need the services that our natural assets provide that, that, that water filtration, that air filtration, the, the food that can be grown on the prime farmland. Um, those are all those integral components that are required for, um, you know, to base a solid foundation for a population for a growing population on. Uh, so why are we acting as if they aren't, worth anything i mean it's just it's it's totally mind-boggling um, well and also too that the communities that they're referring to whether it be somebody that's unhoused or somebody who's elderly on on restricted income or somebody who's come to the country which by the way the majority for the first seven years of new immigrants are are below, living below the poverty line um so those are all communities that are requiring support and services that's hospitals, that's pharmacies, that's schools, that's childcare, that might be immigration services, that might be uh, culturally appropriate food or places that feel familiar to them, libraries, all these things. And we think that somehow putting it in the middle, putting these new homes for these people that are coming, you know, making it almost sound like it's like everybody be afraid um, to put them somewhere where they're not resourced don't have access to services, require them to spend more money to get around and to drive to find jobs and those sort of things is just so terrible that 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 we're intentionally building communities that only certain people of, of uh, income can afford to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think that should be probably more offensive than you know, then the most of the things this government has done is that yep. we are intentionally allowing them to build communities that impoverish our ecological foundation, but also intentionally impoverish the people that are, are the working class or, you know, or below or, or new working class, middle class, whatever. We are intentionally building communities that we know will impoverish them, that will yep. put more kids at risk for, you know, being uh, not having access to food, putting more seniors at risk for having to make choices between their their medications or their grocery bills. Like it, it just is offensive to me. Well, uh, on that point of out of whack priorities, um, in, in a handful of minutes that we've got left, you want to quickly touch on the Auditor General's report? 
<laughs> do we have time? Because we still have. I want to leave people with like a pathway of where we're going, not just a. Uh, okay. So it's up to you, Adam. You're the you're the timekeeper. But uh, well, I mean, I think just quickly, uh, she basically reaffirmed everything we're saying here. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, in in that this is not and and her so her focus is value for money. Um, and basically just saying like, look, your housing policy is, doesn't make sense. Uh, the green belt stuff you're doing doesn't make sense. The, uh, and, and, uh, but of particular relevance to the work that we've done in our focus also is the revelations about their prioritization of the Bradford bypass and the 413, um, which were low priority projects. Uh, deemed so by ministry staff, but for some reason, uh, the ministry and it so happens that Carolyn Rooney was the minister, um, decided that these two projects should actually be considered a high priority. So there's a number of projects out there that were, uh, as a result of sort of research and evidence, one would presume deemed to be high priority, uh, that are no longer actually getting the focus they should have while these two projects, the bypass and the 413 are getting that kind of singular uh, focus and that focus in terms of money and billions of dollars. So there's another one is that the costs for these are actually considerably higher than what the public has been told. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's kind of funny stuff happening there. Uh, they, we've been told time and again that the lands along these highway corridors are not necessarily, you know, the, the highways aren't being built because the land along them is prime for development, at least in particular, this, this art, we've been told this with the bypass. Um, but what we've just been talking about with respect to the changes to planning in Ontario with bill 23, it kind of removes most of the barriers for that. So, chances are these highways are going to go through and you're going to see a crap ton of development uh, happen along them. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also going to be paying out the nose for for the projects and potentially uh, even though they have also said that they're not going to be told, um, there's a good chance they will be, who knows. Yeah. Um, but so in a nutshell, the Auditor General uh, really sort of slammed this government to the point where uh, Doug Ford himself had to come out and sort of <laughs> They stay in your lane, is what he said. He said she's. That was, was, I think, yeah, that was specific with her investigations to the casinos and stuff because he's got weird connections with casinos. But yeah, I think uh, what's just to wrap that up and to move on to kind of where we're going next. Yeah. Well, sorry, sorry. One more thing is it's interesting that this prioritization of highways and you know billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars on highways is coming at the same time. And the auditor general also mentioned this, that other programming uh, is being defunded to the tune of billions of dollars. And that programming specifically is healthcare, specifically healthcare for children, education, specifically health education for our children, you know, so out of whack priorities, Mm -hmm. who is this guy? And and, well, and 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 like, why is he in office? Why is he a public? Like, it, it blows my mind that people actually support this government uh, to get real political about this. But the priorities 
should be on children. Why the fuck are our priorities not on our kids? Yeah. They anyway. sh- they should be on the future absolutely. And yeah. you know, it's just like anybody that invests in the stock market knows that that cost averaging that when you invest early it pays off bigger dividends down the road than if you were to start investing when you're 65 with the same amount, right? Like that, that dollar cost averaging that using time to help support is, is really crucial. And it's similar to our climate and, and education, healthcare, the more that we can be preventative, the more that we do stuff up front, the more benefits we'll have finishing up the 413 bypass. What are they, what do those highways have in common? There is from Toronto star and Narwhal, uh, from those investigative reports, there is a lot of land bought up around those highways for develop by developers and by those similar ones that also bought in the green belt. They're both in the green belt, both highways, um, different percentages, but they both traverse through different parts of the green belt. Um, they are much more expensive than they said to be. So the bypass was originally 800 million. Now we're talking up to 4 billion. That's 230 some odd million dollars a kilometer Ontarians are paying, right? That's, that's a ridiculous amount of money. So it seems for someone who would just be looking from the outside without being partisan, like, man, it seems like this government is really geared up on destroying that legacy, whether it be through highways or through taking out chunks or whatever else. So just quickly, I'll say with the green belt thing, there's, there's a separate process. It's regulatory. It's just moving through the boundaries. That consultation period has closed, but, um, there is no requirement about when they have to make a decision on the proposals to take out almost 7,500, 7,400 acres of land within the green belt and replace it with land that's around Aaron Caledon, I think, um, Guelph, mm-hmm. I think areas, I think Guelph and Aaron is most of, most of the area that, that this new greenbelt lands were going to be in. You can read the Toronto star. They, they did a really good investigative piece about these new lands and how the town doesn't even know that they were supposed to be in there, that it doesn't actually protect a lot of the land that they were asking to have protected. It's, it's a big schmoozle. Um, I guess what it comes down to with us is first I want to say a shout out to the local organizers that aren't just you and me, but are in your communities in Aurelia and Alliston and Collingwood with Sega beach, Bradford, Innisfil, um, Oro, Springwater. I mean, every municipality Midland um, had people within their municipality that was organizing. And so in a matter of two weeks, we were able to pull together 10 rallies, uh, all thanks to the people on the ground organizing and contacting us saying, how do we get involved and how do we take this further? So big shout out to them. Uh, People have been sending in tons of letters to the letter to the editor. I haven't gone on any of the news sites locally and not seen something related about the green belt or bill 23, which is a big, uh, boost and and take a lot of credit to the people that are living in our area. I think sometimes people assume that we're in Simcoe County and we have all conservative MPPs and therefore um, we're backwater, uh, that we don't really care about our environment. And actually polling has showed that people in Simcoe County care more about their environment than other places you'd expect, such as Toronto. Um, So not to do like a whole shit post, you know, podcast shit post, (laughs) I wanted us to just chat a little bit about what's happening next. I mean, yes, Bill 23 is now made into a law. The regulations are still out. So there's still opportunities to kind of put pressure politically. The municipalities are as equally concerned about this as we are for the most part. 
and I think are looking for citizens to be allies in this, to put pressure locally. And the Greenbelt decision hasn't been made. So we're trying to do a couple of things um, to get people on the ground who care about it, who don't know what to do, to provide pathways and support that uh, we need that sustained effort. It doesn't have to be rallies all the time, but really the thing that's going to make a difference, the opportunities are uh, media exposure. So whether that be letters to the editor or whether that be events or rallies, um, another opportunity is pressure politically. So do you, you know, have you been calling your MPP or sending an email? Do you know somebody that knows them well? That sort of thing matters. And then I think the thing that we always come back to is community building. How do we keep the network of people that are concerned about this, that share similar values, connected and moving together? Yeah, that community building, uh, you know, it really goes back to that sort of diversity, the strength that diversity builds um, into yep. any social structure. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's key. So maybe, uh, I know we're going to wrap up here, but I just thought maybe in the show notes, mm-hmm. you could share, um, we've got a little bit of a toolkit around Bill 23 in the green belt. So for example, there's like print your own leaflets, where if you're someone who wants to stuff mailboxes or go to the farmer's market, or you go to hockey tournaments or something, I don't know, take your pick wherever you go. And you want to have a very quick and easy, like here is something you need to know. Here's some contact information. We have leaflets that you can print on your own. One sheet does three, cut them up and Bob's your uncle. Um, We're going to be running weekly phone zaps so you can join online and, um, you know, get together as a community, talk about what's going on. And we each take time to, to call decision makers. Uh, There's also a rally kit that if you've never had a rally, you don't know how to run one, but you'd really like to do one. That's great. Um, And of course we have links to all these different petitions. So I'll, uh, hopefully we put those in the show notes and you can access that because what's, what's really going to matter. I mean, I think, I think how I look at it is, is this particular issue seems a lot more about how we're going to allow governments to treat our future, um, our, our future legacy. Like what, what is Ontario really supposed to be moving towards? Are people caring enough about where we're heading to do something about it or are they happy to watch us devolve and circle the drain, all of our institutions circling the drain? And I don't want to be hyperbolic about that, but this is the time that at least that I've seen, it doesn't have to be all specific to the Green Belt or Bill 23, but there has to be some sort of response back to us allowing things to devolve to the way that they've devolved and how we're going to push together and and work together for for better than what we're being offered right now. And just to add to the um, sort of toolkit items, uh, we don't currently have this, but uh, we've, we've got other stuff on our Redbubble store, like Greenbelt um, T-shirts and hoodies and hats and stickers and stuff like that. But uh, in the next day or two, we'll get up some hands-off the Greenbelt uh, bumper stickers and, and things like that that you can buy as well. So. When you're driving down the 400 on your way to work or whatever, if you're, uh, you know, somebody who does that, you can, you can tell everybody on the way that uh, you don't appreciate what this government's doing. Yep. And again, I'm just going to make it very clear that we are not partisan. We're not paid off by the liberals or the NDP or the Green. 
that is not that is not our thing. We are issue focused. Is that possible? Like you know, the, it the, is the supposedly possible. That everyone Every, thinks that we're owned by somebody, but it's yeah. <laughs> we just don't know the right people, yet? obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what Adam and I have always stuck to is we're clear on the issues, and if people want to make the and climate and healthcare and transit and affordable housing partisan. Like that's their deal. Our deal is that all of those things should be accessible to people. We should have an equitable and fair society, one that's actually healthy. And if someone wants to make that partisan saying, well, you're anti-PC, think about what that means. We're saying we want to build communities and we're, we're criticizing things that make communities less affordable, less healthy, less sustainable. And if that's, if the comeback there is you're partisan because you're anti- <laughs> all of the things that make communities unhealthy places to be. Think about what that says about that statement. Well, we are look, issue focused. Yeah. And, and one of the, uh, another strong supporter of ours, um, I mean, um, and, and participant in a number of um, events that we've held, including just recently a, uh, a webinar has been uh, David Crombie and he's, he, he's a well-known red Tory. Right. And, and um, it's, it's so, Nothing against uh, conservatives, and in fact, it's it's right there in the name, conserve conservatism. Right? You um, you value those things that are important to a society, and uh, I mean, of course, there's there's push and pull over exactly how you identify what those things are, and that's that's always going to be the case in a uh, a social organism like our like what our society is. That's always going to be evolving, um, but. Uh, that's you know not all that different from what we're arguing here. There are these really important things. We feel like uh, there's evidence. There's very strong evidence in support of our claim that they are important. I mean, <laughs> you need good air and and clean water and food. I mean, those are the foundations um, of our of our society, and and so we need to conserve those and protect those as as a really valuable asset for us and for future generations and for the future of Ontario. And this, this current government is um, really not doing that. And in fact, is potentially irreparably harming that for all of us. And that's, that's, that's just basic gross negligence, in my opinion. Um, and on that sunny note, on that cheerful note, should we, should we wrap it up? We've overshot our, as usual, we've overshot our hour mark here. Didn't we start off at like the 20 minute we were shooting? For yeah, we decided that, um, that 20 minutes would be good. And then that went to yeah. 30. And we're like, well, if you drive the county, 45 minutes would get you from like Barry to Alliston-ish, you know, area. And then, yeah, so now we just keep going. We expect, yeah. So people are just driving circles around the county, right? That's, <laughs> that's the idea here. Anyway, scenic drives, scenic drives. Take it slow. Um, yeah. All right, folks. Well, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure, and um, we will see you on this podcast in January. Not sure what we'll be talking about in January, but it'll be spicy. And spicy. Uh, yeah. happy holidays, everybody. <laughs> Happy holidays, everyone. Uh, May it be um, very enjoyable and peaceful.